Hello and welcome to The Rate Debate. I'm Darren Langer, co-head of uh, Fixed Income at Yarra Capital, and joining me this month is my fellow co-head of Fixed Income, Roy Keenan. Welcome, Roy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me, Darren. It's great to be here, and I look forward to uh, debating rates and credit markets with you in this month's episode. So it's the first Tuesday of September, and the RBA has just met, and unsurprisingly, um, the Governor Lowe finished uh, his final meeting the way he started with uh, making no change to interest rates. There was a few things in the statement, Roy, that I thought were interesting for a statement that hardly changed. It's probably not saying a lot, but um, they made um, a few comments where they sort of toned down some of the language around um, job openings and perhaps the tightness of the labour market. And they've introduced something that I thought they should have um, said last month was uh, some risks around what's happening in China. Was there anything um, there that you saw that I missed? No, I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, I think from just reading this, to, you know, to me, it's a, it's basically a rates on hold for the foreseeable future unless we do get a sort of inflation spike. I think employment now is sort of off the – the strong employment numbers are probably off the radar. I think they've sort of toned down that a little bit. So it's all probably going to all be about inflation and, and probably if you're on the easing bandwagon in 2024, then it's probably going to be about, you know, what, what's the growth rate and, and how well the consumer is going to hold up. Yeah, it's interesting they they mentioned services inflation again this month, but again pointing to what the experience was offshore as if they're still waiting for it to happen here. Yet they also make the comment around the fact that they see wages relatively under control. To me, that seems a bit unusual in that normally you know wages are things that drive services inflation. So if if you're uh, not worried about wages, you probably shouldn't be worried about services inflation. So not exactly sure what the RBA, whether they just felt like they had to say something, but it didn't sound like something they're terribly worried about. Nah, to me, it sort of implies that they're looking at what's going offshore, but uh, unless this sort of validates here, we're probably going to have you know inflation prints like we've had probably over the last, what, three to four monthly prints now that are going to surprise the market on the downside. And then, you know, if we, the way we're seeing inflation at Yarra, we think it will continue to surprise the market on the downside and, and hence why, you know, we've probably seen the last tightening in this cycle. Yeah, they certainly mentioned that they think inflation's now peaked, which I think is the first time they've actually said it in a in a meeting statement. That in itself is interesting. If you look at some of the previous um, rate cycles that we've had, they'd actually started um, either getting close to cutting or cutting even before inflation had peaked. So I know we're sort of talking mid-2024, but you'd, you'd have to say on balance, if we keep seeing the improvements we think we'll see, it could even be a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. You know, that being said, uh, they are they are wanting to see inflation get back in that two three two to three percent band, which is still a fair way away from where we are today. But you know, you know, given the rate of uh, decline that we've seen, it's not you know unforeseeable. I think there's some people out there in the market with the uh, you know first quarter of twenty four uh, rate cut in their in uh, their forecasts. Uh, you could see that playing out if it, especially if you, we, we have a softer consumer going forward. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is the RBA probably uh, is still smarting a little bit from some of the criticism they copped around taking too long to hike. I guess they they run equally the the opposite. If, if things do slow faster than expected, if they take too long to 
to cut rates, um, they're going to end up on the, on the same barrel. Although I guess, you know, that's going to be Michelle Bullock's problem rather than uh, Philip Lowe's. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that um, as we know, the way, po- you know, monetary policy works, as they'll be, if even if it's March quarter, they're still going to have some of the tightenings working through the system at the same time of easing, right? So it's sort of going to be counteracting each other. Yeah, definitely. Pol- monetary policy works with lags, right? <laughs> yeah, of course it does. <laughs> So this is the last meeting, as we said, for, for Philip Lowe. Um, Michelle Bullock takes over, arguably with quite a, a big job ahead of her. Not only does she have to manage a new board structure going into 2024, but, but is also tasked, I guess, with reforming the whole of the, the Reserve Bank, which you know has certainly met a certain amount of criticism over the last few years under Phil Lowe's tenure. If you look back over things, given both of us been in the market for a long time, I mean, how would you rate Phil Lowe's tenure relative to, to some of the other governors that we've uh, been through? It's quite interesting because, um, you know, as you say, we've probably been through five or six governors ourselves through our careers. And uh, it, what's really interesting when I actually look back through Lowe's tenure and um, it's some 77 meetings, you know, he, he actually changed policy on 23% of occasions. Now, if you remember clearly, he started with rates pretty low at sort of 1.5%, didn't move rates for nearly 30 meetings. So what was quite interesting about this, you know, if you if you look at the totality of his moves, he moved rates about 5.4%, which was down one4 and up 4 what we're seeing. So, you know, for a total change of what, 2.6% uh, up over his tenure. I mean, if you sort of think about rating low, I sort of try and, you know, you go to recent memory and you, you sort of look at Glenn Stevens. And I would have said on face value that, you know, probably because low's been judged, you know, very lately on the, the tightening cycle, rates aren't moving for three years, he's comment in 21. He's probably been judged pretty harshly because if you have a look at what Stevens did, you know, over that sort of 110 meeting career that he had, he moved in rates over 30 times, which is around 27%. So he was pretty, Lowe was pretty active in the same degree as what Glenn Stevens was, but the actual degree of change for Glenn Stevens was like 10.5% move in rates. And he in some ways, while we view him probably more favourably than low, he lowered rates by 3.5%. So we always judge what's better for us, I suppose, than uh, someone who's lifted rates by 2.6% in their tenure. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with um, Lowe is that if COVID hadn't come along, he may actually have uh, been in the situation where he never had to move interest rates at all. Correct. Um, and, yeah. yeah, and and I think in some ways that's you know the advantage that Michelle uh, Michelle Bullock's going to have, right? Is that basically she's starting with rates at four percent, and you know if we're all correct and you know inflation is uncontrolled, growth slowing employment's holding up okay she's going to be moving you know probably a similar type of starting point to what stevens had where he's the main moves were going to be you know downward in in um in interest rates so you know i think she's you know got the perfect start to a you know perfect you know perfect positioning for the start of her career yeah and i guess unlike stevens she's probably going to be cutting interest rates into a normal kind of cycle rather than an emergency cycle like the GFC, which is, again, a slightly different situation. Well, um, we hope so. <laughs> there's a financial crisis or uh, another COVID crisis around the corner, but uh, it, it seems to be uh, each of the governors, at least you know, in my lifetime, have had one major problem to have to deal with. So it's probably going to be the case she will. Correct. Well, let's hope it's not China. Since you brought China up, it's probably a good chance to jump in there. That, that to me, was probably the, the biggest change um, in the RBA's statement this month. 
As I said, I really thought and I was surprised they didn't mention it um, the previous month. Lots of storm clouds, I guess, brewing over China. You know, when we sort of came out of the, the COVID crisis initially, many people were pointing to the strength that China was bringing to the global economy, that the West was six months behind China and that everything was going to be rosy. Now China, you know, through overlending in property, probably too much debt, is now starting to look a little bit on the on the rocky side, particularly in in that property market. Is this a, a portent to what's likely to happen in Western economies in in six to twelve months' time? Uh, look, I think um, from my perspective, you know, we've obviously been you know watching this space for what two to three years now, especially the the Chinese property market. I think the the key things is you know. Part of the problems in China is cyclical and structural. We know the demographic issues that they've got over there. But I think the one thing that the the policy that they've enacted in the past has been we need to grow out of this problem. And if you look at where they stand today, that's probably the approach that um, the current incumbents will take is that they need to grow out, which means they're, they're probably going to have to ease fiscal policy do a bit of monetary policy easing, probably put some things that in place that support the property market to give investors confidence because the last thing you, you know, if you do talk about an event that could appear and the RBA is obviously included China in the minutes, this uh, this meeting, you know, it is one of those types of events that could derail markets and um, and potentially have a, you know, risk-off type scenario. Not to mention then in Australia, we're so aligned uh, to China from our resources and the implications for our growth. So I can see why the, the RBA is watching that really closely. But I think that ultimately what we'll see is that, um, you know, hopefully there won't be an escalation of this and, and that the, the Chinese government will actually step in and, and uh, provide that stimulus that I, and, and sort of support that that property market over there requires. Yeah, I guess the, the one thing when I sort of look at it, Chinese government has plenty of spare capacity to support most of these lenders. We saw Western governments do the similar sort of thing during the GFC. I guess, though, you know, Australia's benefited pretty much from the building and construction in China that's happened over the last 10 to 20 years. If they do have a demographics problem and if we are going to start seeing their population shrink relatively dramatically, you know, are we still going to see the same sort of stimulus coming through in those areas, even if, you know, they don't end up having a financial crisis, you know, do they end up still underbuilding and that ultimately hurts hurts our economy? Uh, look, I think it's it's no doubt. I, I think resource companies, if they, if this is not at the forefront of their mind, they, um, you know, should be starting to think about alternative markets, um, you know, um, India, Vietnam, uh, other countries out there where we can sort of uh, de-risk our economy because as we know in some ways we've been the lucky country but some of that has come about from our, our immense resources and the type of minerals that we have so to me it's sort of um, if we're not you know if we're not thinking about it we're going to be too late um, you know to actually sort of uh, smooth the problems that potentially could come from uh, you know a struggling China yeah it's it's going to be an interesting one I mean it's probably not a story for the for the next couple of years but it's probably going to take you know 10 or 20 years to play out but it's certainly um, you know something future governments in Australia will have a have a lot to sort of deal with and and as you say replacing a market like China is possible but it's going to be quite a tricky uh tricky act so yeah. it'll be interesting to see sort of what happens from there what's quite ironic about it darren is that um if you think about 
you know, wine, barley, the embargoes that were put on by China over the last sort of couple of years. Um, in some ways, that's helped those industries to force diversification and look for other uh, other marketplaces. And um, in some ways, they're probably the the segments of the Australian market that are probably going to be less impacted by the anything that comes out from China. It's true. Nothing like self interest to get things moving. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> We've just sort of seen company reporting season sort of coming to an end. You know, we've seen through the the numbers in recent weeks that not so much the government pulling back spending, although it's talking about doing it, but we are starting to see the consumer considerably pull back on spending. What are you sort of seeing coming through the companies that you've been talking to and do you sort of see any themes that will impact on credit markets going forward? It was an interesting reporting period because we obviously had um, equity markets and, and a lot of commentators approach this sort of period in the market where they sort of had down, you know, had actually downgraded some uh, of their uh, EPS and earnings over the period and what was really interesting for us, we sort of approached this period with a pretty open mindset that we thought the actual half year of the first half of 23 would hold up very well and was probably going to be a tale of two quarters, uh, like a really strong March quarter and a softening June quarter. So if you look at the half in totality from a company perspective, it held, held up very well. But there's no doubt some sectors, um, if we look at financials, today financials, there's no doubt uh, that net interest margin NIMS are under pressure, increasing interest rates. There's obviously, um, there, you know, NIMS have been under pressure for probably a good 12 months now. You know, especially um, some of the non-major regional types and non, uh, you know, non-bank lenders, uh, NIMS are under pressure. Especially the the regionals where they've been a lot more reliant on the TFF, and obviously the end of TFF rolling off um, means that the cheap borrowing uh, that they experienced at sort of ten basis points for a three-year period is now has to be refinanced, and hence NIMS are under pressure at probably the wrong time of the cycle. But from a financials point of view, the one thing that has continued to surprise us is arrears. Arrears have held up very well. Bad debts have risen, but uh, not alarmingly. So we're sort of only back to sort of pre-COVID types uh, of levels for arrears. And if you'd asked me 12 to 18 months ago when the RBA started their tightening cycle that we'd have, you know, 4% higher interest rates and arrears only back to where things were pre-2019, I thought you would have been crazy. But um, it does seem that people, mortgage holders and, and anyone with, uh, you know, personal loans or auto loans out there, um, they're holding up very, very well, which is really surprising to us. Bank balance sheets are in great shape. From a consumer perspective, there's no doubt consumer companies, anyone involved with discretionary spending, margins are under pressure from falling prices as we see inflation falling, wages rising, volumes held up pretty well. But I think, you know, the biggest test is going to be the second half of 23. I really do think that the second half of 23 is going to be a real tough one for discretionary spending and falling prices. So I think that's one area we we want to watch closely. Insurance sector held up very well. Some One of the sectors that we really do like. Obviously, they're beneficiaries of rising premiums, uh, return on assets, especially with high interest rates, is really positive for insurers. Yes, there's sort of an alarming you know, rise in or small rise in claim costs and the cost of reinsurance, but overall the um, credit, you know, credits uh, within the insurance space hold up very well. The one area where we see do see a bit of risk and, and where in some ways uh, the pain hasn't been felt is in the, the REIT sector, in the property sector. We we still think value there's sort of valuation headwinds remain. The full impact of rising interest rates hasn't really come through in valuations in our view. We think valuations still have a fair to fall and hence, you 
know, sort of leverage is sort of rising as, uh, you know, property companies not selling assets quick enough to um, sort of fend or raise capital to fend off that rising leverage uh, from the valuation drops that they're seeing. So in some ways, the way we view that sector at the moment, and if we sort of compare our internal rating, credit ratings compared to the rating houses, we're sort of downgraded. You know, I say all, but there's definitely some companies whose ratings are under pressure and hence that sector we think has still got further to play out and, and in some ways is ripe for equity raising or uh, sort of subordinated debt raises that are, are going to come out of that space to protect credit ratings. So in some ways that's the one area that is sort of under a bit more pressure. One of the, the things I thought was interesting, uh, company profits came out the other day. Uh, they were off a lot more than many people expected. And I guess probably given what I've been hearing from, from you and some of our equity analysts, um, it seemed a little bit surprising. I, I know, again, the, the tale of the first quarter versus second quarter had something to do with it, but it seemed to a lot of be coming from the resources sector, which traditionally are not big borrowers in this market. I mean, was there anything that you sort of saw talking to some of those companies that sort of pointed to that result? Or I think it's a bit of a one-off for the resources sector, but I think from the consumer's point of view and discretionary spending, you've already seen July's already tougher, and I think that's a trend we're going to see uh, right across the board. I think the totality of interest rate uh, rises and the increased borrowing costs, there's going to be an adjustment. I think the one thing that we've got to be very mindful on the consumer and, and and watch there's going to be winners and losers and uh, I think that if we think to who are the winners they're obviously the retirees who have uh, a lot of capital invested now in higher income products and uh, are the beneficiary of that higher income and they're the the baby boomers out there who are you know probably reaping the benefits and accordingly spending going to restaurants and uh, are the true consumer today whereas the now, anyone with a mortgage or a, a major loan is uh, definitely winding back their spending habits. And I think you'll see that in the second half of 23. And I'm not surprised that the RBA is going to monitor that pretty closely and why growth will probably surprise on the downside. But there's no doubt that, that there's a lot more costs um, coming through. Fuel leases are up, lease payments are up. Any company that's leveraged, higher interest rate costs are coming through. You know, If you've got a, a company that's geared four to five times, the amount of interest burden that's uh, come through the, the the balance sheet, or oh, sorry, through the PL now, through higher debt servicing costs, is, it doesn't matter if it's corporate or a, or a state government. The the amount of interest payments now required on a is is quite alarming. So I think it it sort of we're seeing you know yes, it was a good reporting period. Um, from a credit point of view, things held up very, very well, but uh, there's definitely sort of grey clouds uh, on the horizon. It's interesting with the uh, the current generation of of boomers, as you say. Um, they are actually bucking the demographic trends of almost a couple of hundred years where you tended to find your uh, 50 to, to 65-year-olds starting to slow their spending. But we're actually seeing quite the opposite now. As their incomes have risen, they're actually out there spending. And I guess to some extent, maybe that's that's a thing that we live longer these days. So, you know, 50 to 65 is not as old as what it was you know, 50 to 80 years ago, and maybe that's starting to change. But it'll be interesting to see how governments handle that because the traditional way has been to, you know, whack up interest rates really fast, uh, slow the consumer down and to get inflation under control. But if we do have this inflation pulse coming from that generation spending more and more rather than less, it'll be interesting to see how they slow them down. <laughs> I just think it, uh, you know, it's uh, been a, you know, a pretty good period for the marketplace. Um, I think the, the one interesting thing for us as fixed income investors is trying to sort of navigate, protect income and and try and prick when the, the next move is down in in, um, in interest rates. And 
that'll mean that we'll see pretty big changes in yield curves and um, you know hopefully that you know your and my skill and, and will help in greater returns on, on on that front most definitely that, that's our job <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for the month. Uh, thank you for joining me, Roy. It's always great to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Darren. It's been a pleasure being part of this month's debate. Tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's October rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. The Rate Debate podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs, and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor.